For so many modern-driven women, life is about being more than one thing. We're multidimensional, and so are our conversations. We carry multiple identities. We can be both mother and artist, both attorney and entrepreneur, both clinician and CEO, both humble and proud. Life for women like us is about both, about all of the above. It's about the and. Our stories are the stories of so many of you. We wanted the freedom and flexibility to live life on our own terms, and we felt the pull to be more present with our families. But we still felt drawn to contribute, to build, and to create. And we wanted to establish financial security for ourselves and our children. For us, that looked like founding software companies, but for you, that may look different. Our mission is to help other smart, conscious women build and grow businesses on the internet. Starting up online can be overwhelming and isolating, but it doesn't need to be. Join us for honest conversations about what it really means to grow an online business that aligns with your values and adds something meaningful to the world. I'm Sandy Connery. And I'm Jenny Barcelos. And you're listening to the And She Spoke podcast. In our business, we're big fans of financial literacy and accountability. Knowing your numbers is an essential aspect of building a successful business and inherent responsibility for any entrepreneur. We also believe that what you focus on grows. So pay attention to your money. How do we stay up to speed on our numbers? We use Bench for our bookkeeping. It's simple, elegant, and saves us so many hours that would otherwise be spent neck deep in receipts on the other side of a spreadsheet. Each month, our transactions are automatically imported into Bench and we get on-demand financial reports. We even enjoy opening up our profit and loss statement to review each month. And when tax time comes around, we are up to date and ready to go. And this is what financial empowerment feels like. Head on over to anshe.co slash bench to save 20% off your Bench accounting plan for the first six months. Welcome to the And She Spoke podcast. Today was such a treat because we spoke with Maho Malfino, who is a writer, speaker, and women's creative leadership coach. She has a master's in design from Stanford. She supports women in becoming better, more resilient, creative leaders at top companies such as Facebook, Twitter, Airbnb, and IDEO. Her work has been highlighted in Fastco Design, Medium, and LinkedIn. She is also the host of Heroin, a podcast featuring the journeys of top creative women leaders and risk takers. Today, Jenny and I discussed her brand new book called Break the Good Girl Myth. In this book, Maho explains five myths that most girls and women are believing and living by each and every day. These are outdated rules and they are keeping all of us good, but not powerful. Our society teaches us as young girls, we need to follow the rules. We need to be perfect, to trust our logic over our intuition, to keep the harmony, make everyone happy, and always sacrifice yourself for others. But being the good girl holds us back from our true potential. That's the conversation today with Maho Malfino. Enjoy. So welcome, Maho, to the podcast. We are so excited to have you. Thanks for having me, Jenny and Sandy. So to start, do you want to just introduce yourself to the audience? And specifically, I would love to learn what you're doing now with your coaching. And I want to know more about this design background that you have and how you work that into coaching. Sure. So my name is Maho Molfino. 
and I'm a women's leadership coach. I'm an author and I'm also a designer. So I'm lots of things. And I love that you all have that point of view that we can be lots of things. (laughs) So I, I like to use lots of labels to describe myself. And I like to begin my journey in thinking about my childhood. I know that's way far back, but I think it's important because I was born in Argentina to Argentine parents, but I grew up in Canada. So I always had this thing with cultural identity. Like I didn't, I wasn't really sure where I belonged. And so I spent a great deal of time trying to prove myself and fit in to the dominant culture I grew up in, which would have been Canadian culture. I grew up in Toronto, Montreal. And as part of that, and as part of this like desire to repay my parents for their sacrifice as immigrants, I became that prototypical good girl you can imagine. I was a straight A student. I won the spelling bee. You know, I did figure skating. I did jazz ballet. I was a teacher's pet. You know, I just was really a rule follower, you know, my entire life. And that caught up to me. That caught up to me in my 20s. And, you know, I had this moment working at a corporate job, looking at myself in the elevator mirrors, being like, who am I? What is my real purpose here on this planet? Like, what do I really want to be contributing? So I like to say I've spent the last decade plus sort of deconditioning myself and unlearning those earlier habits I picked up between the ages of zero to 18. And that's a lot of my work with women leaders today, which is looking back at our girlhood to understand how that's affecting us as leaders, as entrepreneurs, and as contributors. Mm -hmm. And where does the design part come into? Were you trained as a designer? Yes. So eventually after quitting my corporate job, I ended up moving out to California to the Bay Area. And particularly, I moved to Palo Alto, which is a very big like innovation hub. Stanford is there. A lot of tech companies are there. And that's when I got exposed to design thinking and entrepreneurship was by being in that ecosystem. It totally changed my life. My roommate, who I randomly met on Craigslist, actually (laughs) was a designer at IDEO. My boyfriend at the time who I met at Stanford, who is now my husband, is a designer and now is doing design and venture capital and teaches at the Stanford Design School. So I very quickly got swept up (laughs) into this incredible environment of design. And I I had no understanding of what it was besides like, oh, graphic design, fashion design, industrial design, which I think is what a lot of us think of when we think of design. And it was only until being exposed to design thinking at Stanford that I realized it's actually an orientation, a mindset, a way of approaching problems that allows us to take an idea into form and, you know, involves multiple phases. So it's a, it's a well-proven method that has been used by top innovative companies, entrepreneurs, leaders. So when I realized that design thinking was an approach to problems, it really expanded my worldview and it also helped me build creative confidence, which at the time was important to me because by the time I landed at Stanford and by the time I landed into that ecosystem, 
like I mentioned, I was such a good girl. I was afraid of making mistakes, afraid of taking risks. I was kind of like coloring within the lines and design thinking like blew that open. I was like, in order for you to create anything from nothing, you have to be messy. You have to be iterative. You have to not be precious. And so when I learned that entire philosophy, I became fascinated about how we could use it to design our careers, design our lives. And it became a real cornerstone and huge influence in my coaching with women. So you learned the design first and you took those principles into coaching. When did you know you wanted to be a coach? Well, after I got my master's in learning design and tech at the School of Ed, uh, education at Stanford, I realized I had two choices. Like, well, there were probably more than two, but at the time it felt like there was a fork in the road. I could become a designer at a tech company and go back into a nine to five and work within the system, or I could be an entrepreneur. And I didn't want to be a founder and raise venture capital. So I was like, what other kind of entrepreneur is there? <laughs> and I quickly realized the other kind of entrepreneur was the consultant coaching route. And I had done a lot of strengths evaluation on my strengths. Uh, I had taken Strengths Finder and realized I had some of the key elements that would be required in coaching, like uh, connectedness, um, I'm high on activation, highly empathic. So it became clear. And plus, people would come to me for to talk, and I would was naturally someone who liked to mentor others. So I was like, I think this is it. And it was really hard to tell, you know, going back to the good girl stuff, it was really hard to tell my parents at that time because I just graduated from Stanford and they were like, finally, you're going to go into that like high paying tech job, right? And like really secure your future. And I was like, nope, I'm going to become a coach. And they were like, what? <laughs> what is that? You know, because there was no mental model for them as immigrants around what coaching even it. Okay. Can we just talk about your book now? Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Loved it. So why don't you just start by telling everyone what your book is, what it's about, and I want to know why you decided to write it. Sure. My book is called Break the Good Girl Myth, How to Dismantle Outdated Rules, Unleash Your Power, and Design a More Purposeful Life. And the book goes through what I call the five good girl myths that every woman needs to break to unleash her power. So the five good girl myths are tendencies, subconscious, sneaky tendencies we pick up in girlhood that follow us into adulthood. So they're often below the line, below our conscious awareness, and they're things we've inherited from our families, religion, pop culture, the patriarchy at large. So this book is really about helping women overcome their internalized patriarchy so that they can share their gifts with the world in whatever form that wants to take. And I wrote it because I noticed so many women in my life, my clients, podcast listeners, family, friends, so many wanted and longed to share their gifts, to share their perspective with the world, but they were feeling stuck. They were feeling scared. And that was painful for me to watch. And I could also see myself in that <laughs> because I'd kind of grown up as a good girl with, with that strong good girl mentality. And so I started to wonder, well, how could I support in unblocking them 
But a lot of it, like I mentioned, was so below the line. So the problem was not even something that a lot of women I was working with could even see. So I developed the five good girl myths to be like, hey, these are the five blind spots we really need to look out for. They're so deeply ingrained that we picked up that are affecting our leadership today. And so that's why I wrote it. I wrote it to to support women and from my perspective as a designer and also as sort of a recovering good girl myself. Yeah. We were just talking before you came on and we both agreed that your definition or the way that you explained the patriarchy is one of the best that we've ever read. No. So can, yeah, abs- by far. And I, and I think Jenny, maybe just tell the, everyone your perspective on why it's so good. Well, I think it, it doesn't read as if it's coming from a place of anger. I, I love that it's coming from a place of understanding and and like you're trying to contextualize why we are the way that we are and why these things hold us back. And I, I just appreciated the kind of, it was a little bit more academic than a lot of articles and books that I've read, just sort of explaining the role that the patriarchy has in our lives. So I appreciated it. I think it's going to be accessible to people for whom other feminist literature maybe isn't as accessible right away. Which I am one of those. So I was like, oh, this can, so can you just say it? Can you just teach everyone how you see the patriarchy? Sure. So it's interesting that you bring that up around anger. I can so relate to that. You know, when we learn about patriarchy, we often do learn it from, you know, in gender studies, in an academic environment. (laughs) So it can be really like convoluted. It can even often sound very radical. So it was important for me to be before we even like, you know, before the book goes into the five good girl myths, I found I felt really strongly like, let's get on the same page about what we're talking about when we say patriarchy, because a lot of people have an allergy to that word. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason I think a lot of women have felt an allergy to the word is because it feels like it's blaming men and it's pointing a finger at a group of men out there. But when we redefine patriarchy, to mean a system, a social and cultural system that privileges men in visible and invisible ways over women and other genders, then we see that there's no one to blame, but that it's the air we breathe, the water we drink. It's been around for thousands of years. It's a global phenomenon. It's factual. (laughs) It's not something that we need to argue about. It absolutely exists. And when we, when we define it as a system, then we get to say, oh, this is something that's spread through people, but doesn't come necessarily from people. And so it, I think it allows, to, to have a, it allows us to have a little more compassion. Yeah, it just takes the fear out of the concept. I mean, I think it's just, it's like, this is what it is. I mean, this is the world that we live in. There are, there are certain privileges and some of them, I think, wanted and unwanted, right? Like different, we have complicated relationships to that privilege, all of us do. And so I, I just thought that was really helpful for explaining why so many women are in the position that we're in with respect to our relationship to power. It's, I, I really appreciated that. So thank you. <laughs> sure. And then I, th- I think your next point after the patriarchy is like you often ask women that you coach, what were you like a little girl as a little girl? And like your point is trying to find out who they were before they breathed mm-hmm. the air of the patriarchy. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Like, I love to ha- ask women. It's the first question I also ask on my podcast, the Heroin Podcast, to every interview guest. What were you like as a little girl? And what I'm really trying to get at is some kind of essential self, a more authentic self that would have been underneath or existed before the social self formed, before the layers of socialization and rules fell upon our head. So typically this is before girls go to school. That's usually when it is. But even then, even at such a young age, we're so affected by the media we consume and the stories we consume. So it really is everywhere, the products, the stories. We're starting, obviously we're starting to see it change, right? Like Disney has had a real awakening. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, the Disney characters that I grew up watching are so different than the Disney characters that the Gen Zers are getting right now, which is exciting. So it's definitely changing. But yeah, I think that for women who feel really stuck, if you don't really know what your purpose is, or if you're even as an entrepreneur, if you're like, am I really working in my zone of genius? Am I really working from that essential place? Close your eyes, go back to when you were really, really young. What, what were you attracted to? What did you enjoy doing? What gave you enthusiasm? And that's going to give you a good reorientation towards mm-hmm. authenticity instead of what I call the myth of rules, which is the first good girl myth in the book. Do you find that most women have, I think we all have all of them a little bit, right? But do like my scores were like super high in, in, in three and four of them and then one low in the other. Like do most of us sort of battle all of them or is there one predominant? I believe that we have all of them to various degrees, but one or two are primary. Mm-hmm. And so in my case, so in chapter three of the book, there's an assessment you can take to discover your score and find out the dominant, uh, your primary good girl myth. My number one is perfection. My number two is logic. I score very low on harmony and sacrifice. And there are some women that I meet that their number one is harmony and their number two is sacrifice and then they're low on the others. Or there are some that are tied for three, you know, but then as they dig deeper into the book and go really deep into the chapters, they're like, oh, no, my number one's definitely the myth of perfection, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so is that mm-hmm. the most common one? I just, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm like so curious. It, we deal with our clients so much around perfectionism. And I'm just wondering in your work, is that, and we deal with entrepreneurs and I, I know that you mostly work with not entrepreneurs in your in your coaching work. And I just wonder if that's different or if perfectionism is just generally really high with high achieving women. Yeah, I think high achieving women, particularly entrepreneurs, attract other high achieving entrepreneurs. So I think we like hang out in perfection gangs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's probably what you're seeing. But actually I think harmony and sacrifice are mm-hmm. biggies. Yeah. Interesting. interesting. I've been seeing that a lot, particularly harmony. And then for older generations, sacrifice. But yeah, it's – and you know what's interesting is 
you know, the first good girl myth that I talk about is the myth of rules, but I also say it's the sneakiest and hardest to detect. I mean, if you're an entrepreneur, you've already sort of stepped outside the system Mm -hmm. and rules, but the women that I work with that are in corporate jobs, Mm -hmm. myth of rules, very high. Interesting. Yeah, that that makes sense. I just don't know those women. (laughs) I don't (laughs) encounter those women on a regular basis. Yeah. You know what I found interesting going through it? So mine was harmony. I'm one of those harmony people, number one, and then um, rules and perfection, two and three equal. And I had scored super low on sacrifice. And I was like, ah, bah, no, that, that. And then I read that section, that chapter, and it was like the most powerful message to me, mm. even though I scored low on it. And I think it was, and Jenny, Jenny and I were just talking about this, is like, I answered those questions in your quiz as an entrepreneur, like sort of professionally. But if I answered them personally, I think they would have skewed a little bit differently. But this idea about women sacrificing and giving up um, their time and energy for the goals of others. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Because I think this one, whether you score or not, it's like the way that you wrote that, like you're missing out on your own dreams because you're sacrificing others was so impactful to me. So mm-hmm. let me, I'd love to hear you just talk about that. Yes. The myth of sacrifice is the last good girl myth I talk about in the book. And it's it's the one with the deepest, thickest roots in the patriarchy. It has been passed down by multiple generations within families. We have been rewarded, so highly rewarded as women for sacrificing, for helping, for putting other people's needs before our own. And what I argue is what's, you know, with all the good girl myths, there's always a cost. There's always something that's at stake, right? And for the myth of sacrifice, it's like on a daily basis, it might not look like a lot that you're giving up your time and energy here and there as your role as in your various roles, right, as sister, daughter-in-law, mother, etc. But in the long run, that compounds to your destiny and contribution. That's the highest cost. That's the greatest stake. That's what's at stake. Your greatest contribution if you're caught in defaulting into sacrifice. And so, you know, the real powers to reclaim here on a daily basis are your time and energy through time boundaries and energy boundaries. So for, for a woman who is, this is their primary good girl myth or scores high on this, it's the key intervention is boundaries. Mm-hmm. That's where you really want to focus and, and really focus on placing the adequate boundaries around your time and energy. For the myth of harmony, we're talking about boundaries more around exerting your voice and being able to say no, even though other people might not like you and may be disappointed, et cetera. So for someone with the myth of sacrifice, the biggest fear is being seen as selfish because we have been trained. There's been huge propaganda, patriarchal propaganda from the beginning of time that, you know, the woman who reaches for the apple and takes a bite out of it is a selfish whore. (laughs) So, (laughs) I mean, that's basically what we've been dealing with. And so it's ingrained in our psyches. Like if I take this time out for myself, if I prioritize myself in my calendar, I'm going to be viewed as selfish. I am selfish. 
And then there's the guilt associated with that. And that's, we have to decondition all of that if we really want to share our voices. I love the story with your mother and her, I think she said, I'm angry for all the potential left behind, like with, with respect mm-hmm. to her life. Right. And it was like, oh, wow. Like that, cause she was a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Do you want to just tell her story quickly? Yeah. My mama, she's so great. She was a lawyer. And what's interesting is Argentina, you have to understand the cultural context, highly Catholic society, really ingrained gender norms. Woman is the caretaker. She takes care of the family. And this is in the 70s when my parents would have met. So the man is the main breadwinner. He is the ambitious one with the career. So my mom, even though she was ambitious, highly intelligent, she fought really hard to get her law degree and spent multiple years on that. In the end, she sort of still defaulted into the cultural current and the norms of her society, right? And she is such a feminist that she has awareness about it, right? That's kind of the worst part. She's like, I know that's what happened. And there's a part of her that feels like, you know, obviously she like loved being a mother and, you know, all of that. Ironically, later she goes back to work when I'm a teenager and we have funny stories of her and I arguing. She recently reminded me of that, (laughs) that I would tell her, mom, you know, when I was 15, don't work, mom. Like we need you at home. And I'm like, there's no way I could have ever said that to you. She's like, you said that to me as a little bratty teenager. And so I can imagine she was up against even like the messages from Mm -hmm. her own kids, right? Of like, stay at home, we need you, right? But she felt it was really important for her to get out of the house and to, so even though she, I mean, my mom's a real badass, even though she was like, English was her second language, you know, and she had to forego her law degree in the US, she went out, worked as a manager at top retailers and really fought hard to like sort of carve out her own independence. So yeah, but even then, you know, I think she she still feels like, oh man, you know, what would have happened if I would have continued to be a lawyer? And why didn't we even entertain the idea that maybe he could have followed me to my next Mm -hmm. career move? It just wasn't in the psyche and realm of possibility, right? Because again, going back to patriarchy being so invisible, right? Yeah. So that's my mom's story. No, that's good. I just love that she was like, I think it's the realization of what she was sort of a victim to. I'm not sure if that's the right phrase, but like this happened to me and I acknowledge it. And it's like almost better if she didn't even know, right? Because she didn't know what she missed. But it's so interesting to sort of question, why Mm -hmm. did I do that? No regrets with the kids at all, of course, but why wasn't there a different conversation happening? But anyway. They're just, yeah, it just, it just wasn't. wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't even on the table. Yeah. It was just not even, now we're having those conversations more and more. Like mm-hmm. I see with my husband and I, it's like a different orientation towards equality and gender norms. Mm-hmm. But my parents just didn't, you know, there is more of a traditional model. Yeah. Well, it's hard to do it even now. I mean, we've talked about this a bit on the podcast, but given the discrepancy in pay, you know, just because of these external forces, like so many of my friends who have 
law degrees or medical degrees or PhDs, so many women have still opted to be the primary caretakers when they've had kids because of just the financial realities of they're still not at the same earning capacity as their partner. So it doesn't, I mean, just, just, and it's hard to survive off of a single income if someone does want to stay home for a couple of years. So it's, it's just interesting that even when you reach that cultural awareness, it's still, there are these external realities that make it really hard to realize. Yep. That's a hundred percent accurate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is something we talk about, which is what draws, I think, so many people like us to entrepreneurship, right? Because then we can sidestep those glass ceilings to some degree. They're still obviously there. <laughs> Anyone who's tried to raise a round of funding knows that for a company, but we can sidestep them to some degree in our own earning capacity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. And that's why I've chosen entrepreneurship as my path because of that exact reason. Because I feel like I can have more flexibility and autonomy with my time, which I know is going to be really important when I become a mother. And that sort of my income potential, you know, there's less of a ceiling for me that I see, right? There's more of an upside Mm -hmm. that's correlated with my actual effort and strategy and hard work, right? Versus being in a system where it's like, no matter how hard you work, no matter how strategic you are, how how highly educated you are, you're still going to (laughs) be paid less than your male colleague because of patriarchy. Yeah. Well, I absolutely love this book. It's going to definitely be a keeper for me. I would love for you to talk about like the process of writing a book. Would you share that? Like what that was like? Hard, easy, somewhere in between? Oh, ladies. <laughs> Let me tell hard. you. <laughs> yeah. It was hard. If anyone here is thinking about writing a book who's listening, Let me ask you this one question. I had a little behind the scenes episode I did on my heroin podcast, but the one question I ask is like, are you willing to sacrifice? You know, going back to the myth Mm. of sacrifice, what about the conscious sacrifices we get to make, right? What are you willing to sacrifice? It's just like starting a business. It's like you're starting your own little mini business within a business. So are you willing to sacrifice time and energy placed elsewhere? So there's a huge trade-off that happens when you dedicate yourself so fully to any creative or artistic project. So you really, really, really have to want to do it. And the process of writing, well, this is not usual for writers, but for whatever reason, this is how it turned out for me. Writing the proposal was extremely difficult. (laughs) And it took longer than I expected. And it was harder than writing the manuscript because in the proposal, I essentially had to write the book before writing the book, which means I had to lay out the fundamental concepts of the book. I had to architect it before actually writing it. And so it was a very like top-down process. And that was hard. It took a year and four months to write the proposal. It ended up being something like 150 pages. I had an editor that I hired to help me with the proposal that I paid, you know, thousands of dollars to, which I, so I took a little financial risk and said, I think I can sell this proposal for much more than the cost mm-hmm. that'll, you know, sink into it. And it was just like a stellar proposal, you know, and, and it just, took a lot of, but it took a lot out of me. And there was a point where I wanted to burn the thing down. (laughs) Literally. I was like, please give me a lighter. I'm ready to to set this thing on fire. 
I don't know if it's because it was my first book or what, but it just felt like, you know, when you give birth, maybe your first baby, it's like you're cracking open, the, your body's just sort of doing something for the first time. It kind of felt like that. You know, if I were to get real with you guys, it was like, whew, it was, it was a grind. It mm-hmm. was not that sort of creative flow that, <laughs> that we like to hear about in the creative process. What was nice about that, laying down that groundwork, though, I was reassured by my agent and my editor, the editor that I hired for that phase, that if you lay down this groundwork, the manuscript is going to be so much easier. You're just front-loading the work. You're just front-loading the work. And they were right. Like, literally, I didn't have to restructure anything from proposal to book. Mm-hmm which is nice and rare because some people spend less time on their proposal. And then when they come to their manuscript, they're like, oh my God, they feel lost. So it just depends. Everyone, everyone has a, a slightly unique process. And did you not choose self-publishing for a reason? I wanted the support. Well, there's a few reasons. A book advance. So mm-hmm. I wanted to be paid to write. Mm-hmm. Secondly, distribution. Publishers are able to get your book into bookstores and they have other channels that are helpful. So between the advanced distribution, and then there's a part of me that's, you know, for better, for worse, into the sort of credibility piece mm-hmm. that, that was helpful. Yeah, that makes sense. So clearly we're interested in, in writing a book. So that's why I'm asking these, these questions. Oh, yeah. So I was oh, anything you want. So yeah, no, I will tell you all the insider (laughs) secrets. The painful process that you've just described feels very similar to birthing our software company. So (laughs) I feel like it is that it's like that, that creating something new in the world out of nothing. And you just like you give your soul and your sweat and your creative energy to it to such a degree that it's it becomes like this living, breathing entity. So I imagine it feels similar to that. Yes, exactly right. You pour your blood, sweat, and tears while everyone else is going out at happy hour and getting drinks. You're post-it noting and crying to yourself silently. Like, do I have it? Have I cracked this? You know, I think one of the, the, you know, the fundamental concepts that I can talk to you about now like took time to really bake, like this sort of idea of like, okay, there's a patriarchy. Let's set that foundation. Let's talk about the good girl archetype and then break it down into the five good girl myths. Like architecting that framework just Mm -hmm. took, it took a while. It sounds really simple now that it's done. I'm like, how long, how long could that take? (laughs) (laughs) Right. I know. I had a friend in design who says things are simple at first and they get really hard. Then they come back to simple again. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to move into Joy and Hustle, Jenny? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So Maho, we end every episode by asking our guests for a joy and a hustle. So something that is in your life right now that's bringing you joy that you can share with our audience and also a tool to help them hustle in their career or business. So the thing that's bringing me joy, I'm looking right at it. It's (laughs) a Peloton bike. I know. It's like, gosh, got to give a little plug for the Peloton. Just being able to ride and sweat and then like, I've been like writing and vocalizing, mm. you know, like when things are getting really hard, I'm like, uh, uh, and it doesn't <laughs> sound good, but I'm like by myself and it feels like a really nice release. <laughs> so that's been really like giving me joy, actually. In terms of hustle, I am going to 
have to share about my own book. I feel like if you're an entrepreneur and you want to understand how the inner patriarch is affecting, blocking you in any way in terms of you showing up to your business, showing up as a brand, sharing your voice, check out my book at goodgirlmyth.com. Yep. Second that. I love it. I loved it. And I think, I think you had a phrase about like, what was it? Dismantling the patriarchy inside you. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Like that's what the book is for, right? To identify and see where is it showing up inside of you. So it was exactly. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on and love your work. And we are brand new fans of yours. We'll be watching you or listening to your podcast as well. Super interested in that. Where can people find more of you besides your book URL? Yes. So if you go to goodgirlmyth.com, you'll see that's hosted on my website. So from there, you can explore my website. I have a free quiz. I have a program that I'm uh, launching in January of 2021. And I'm also very active on Instagram. It's my like social media preference at Maho Molfino. Maho spelled with a J. So that's M-A-J-O at Maho Molfino. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Ready to go from, I really want to build an online business, but don't know where to start to, wow, I've just sold my first digital product. That's exactly what we're going to help you do during our free Become an Online Teacher course. We've created a simple five-day email-based course to teach you everything you need to get started as an online teacher. By the end of the week, you'll have a digital product that's mapped out, priced, and ready to offer your community. Head over to soulful.mba teacher to sign up. It's totally free.